welcome to Estradi Illusions. We have a great show planned today. We have uh, we're doing another episode of politics, and we have a uh, progressive activist, volunteer, and somebody who's uh, near and dear to my grandfather's heart. So I'm very excited. This will probably be the first podcast my grandfather ever listens to at the age of 79. He's finally uh, going to. Uh, listen to one because we have uh, his dear friend and a uh, progressive uh, activist in New York. We have Natalie Holm Ellsberg here to talk with us. Uh, we're going to talk uh, Alexandria Casio Cortez, Bernie, and broader 2020 politics. Natalie, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. I um, I don't have much to say. I live in New York City. I um, have been involved in progressive politics since I was. Um, a teenager in South Africa and um, got involved again when Bernie ran for president in the 2015-2016 cycle. And here I am, um, still volunteering and very happy to be engaged in trying to move a progressive message forward. Well, it, you know, you always hear the media talks about on kind of a broader scale the the, the movement that Bernie started, but because of the way the the media tends to function, we don't see a lot of uh, it's it's hard to sometimes put uh, uh, faces to those uh, sort of broader idea. But you were um, one of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's early supporters before she uh, you know became a media sensation, and uh, it feels like a lot of times that Fox News has decided that they're not going to talk about Hillary Clinton any anymore every day in the year 2019 and that she's become kind of a lightning rod for them. But you've been a supporter of hers since before all of uh, before she became a huge national figure. And I'd be really interested to hear about uh, the early days of her campaign and just what it was like to be part of that movement uh, so early on. Sure. Well, um, yeah. So to your point is one of the great things about Bernie's campaign is that um, people who support progressive policy, um, I think had been operating in many ways in different silos in different areas, and a lot of them in sort of institutional organizations, um, which were doing great work. But one of the great things about Bernie's campaign is that sort of ordinary people started to find each other and were like, wait, I'm not the only person who thinks that um, healthcare should be a right and that um, poor people shouldn't die because they have lack of health insurance. And I'm not the only person who thinks that um, candidates shouldn't take money from corporate PACs or from corporations. Um, and I'm not the only candidate who, um, uh, you know, who believes that um, public education should be free and that everybody should have an opportunity to educate themselves without going into massive amounts of debt. So um, one of the after effects, I think, of Bernie's campaign is that all of these progressive people started to find each other. And so I first heard about AOC through some friends who live in Queens. And um, one of the great things about her campaign was that she had these wonderful sort of house get-togethers in people's homes where she would um, talk to supporters and potential supporters and lay out her vision um, <clears throat> of how um, she thinks our democracy can be better perfected. Um, and she's such a galvanizing, um, charismatic speaker that people in the room would be galvanized themselves and sort of activated to go out there and spread the progressive message and knock on their neighbor's doors and, you know, and gather more, garner more and more volunteers. So it had this very, very organic um, grassroots 
momentum to it, which started to build and build as her campaign, um, as her campaign became bigger and more volunteers came in to keep it moving. And that was very exciting to see. Well, it must have also just been exciting to, um, I know I, I watched the uh, the documentary that was about her and a bunch of the other uh, candidates, the grassroots candidates in 2018. And what made her race so fascinating was you had a guy like Joe Crowley, who's a national figure, hard to, you know, part of Democratic leadership. Typically speaking, these guys are hard to uh, primary successfully. And yet, because of Crowley's uh, very much his distance from the Bronx, he wasn't a guy who even lived. His kids didn't go to school in the Bronx. He was pretty much a figure of Virginia who was just using, or D.C., who was just using his uh, seat back home to stay in power. But um, when it comes to, you know, getting on the ground and uh, going door to door, the real kind of grassroots stuff that uh, the Hillary campaign didn't really invest in terms of their infrastructure, uh, in just going around and seeing the enthusiasm, uh, something that's kind of, I think probably hard to gauge in, in polling or even the way in what the media is talking about. Um, did you kind of see that there was sort of a, a movement building as you were going around trying to get excited about a candidate who actually lived in the area they were running to represent? Um, I think that, I think that, uh, yes, I mean, there was definitely a lot of excitement about her as a candidate and a lot of excitement about her platform. Um, there was also some skepticism um, because there were a lot of people, um, you know, in that district, it used to be Crowley was really the top of um, the sort of the queen's machine. And so a lot of the turnout and a lot of the people who were voters there um, had been voting, um, you know, for Crowley. Crowley hadn't been challenged in a primary for a very long time. And so... People had been voting for Crowley. They were used to voting for Crowley. And a lot of what I heard when I was knocking on doors was this is a, a very, you know, tenuous moment in our democracy and we shouldn't be challenging Crowley from the left because, um, we should really be focusing on Trump. And, um, if you folk, if you challenge him from the left, then really what you're doing is splitting Democrats and that is going to weaken us. And I mean, as a, as a progressive, I don't really buy into that argument at all. I think that one of the things that really weakens the Democratic Party is the attempt to be moderate and tend to be uh, all things to all people, because I think that what happens is there's no real there there. Um, big tent policy, big tent, you know, politics are one thing, but I think that if you can't lead with courage and you can't be a champion for the people in your district, then really you don't have any um, business being in power. And that district is one of the bluest districts in the nation. So that district is a district that should be swinging for the fences. Um, so there, there were some people who would answer the door and say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do anything to bump off a senior Democrat um, because we need all the senior Democrats who sort of know how the system works to get rid of Trump. That was one view. But it was, it was a minority view. Um, there were lots of people who said, who's Joe Crowley? And I think that that really pointed to the fact that he had abandoned his district in terms of the priorities of people who live there. He was a national figure. He was very powerful in the party machinery. But um, for the people who live in Bronx and in Queens, he had not, he hadn't, you know, been present in terms of policy, in terms of visibility. 
um, in terms of actually working to champion the priorities of people who live in that district. Um, so did that answer your question? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the sort of the dichotomy you're describing uh, before AOC was elected seems to kind of be the way that uh, House Democrats are, are still kind of conducting themselves. I haven't really I've thought about this a lot because one of the things that just frustrates me from uh, a, a you know, there's a people who like politics and then there's people who you know, enjoy the idea that a government could function. And when I'm thinking about the legislative agenda of the House Democrats, I know that they're that that we keep hearing, oh, impeachment is a distraction. It's uh, it's going to take us off of uh, bread and butter issues. But it doesn't seem like on a, it doesn't seem like especially from the top up that they're trying to get really anything through. And this this battle between uh you know, Speaker Pelosi, the House leadership and, uh, you know, the 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 squad is um, it, it's weird to see because I keep thinking to myself on on one end. Sure, these people are trying to uh, they claim that they're trying to uh, protect the 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 moderates, the people who managed to swing back uh, districts that Trump won in 2016. They managed to swing it back in 2018. But at the same time, uh I, I, I don't really I don't see a, a, a cohesive vision for what this party is trying to do right now, other than the, the voices from the progressive side who, uh, you know, were, were able to communicate exactly what uh, people like AOC stand for. I don't really know what the Democratic Party on a broader scale beyond that, what they're really trying to go for. Right. I, I mean, I think you identified two things there, which is one is that I think all the energy in the party is currently in the progressive wing. Um, that's where all the energy and the momentum is. And um, that's also where leadership is operating from a place of courage, from saying, what is the right thing to do? What is um, the moral thing to do? What is the courageous thing to do? What is the democratic small d thing to do? Um, and, and so you see, um, you know, people speaking up, people in the squad speaking up, and drawing attention to things which have not gotten a lot of coverage. And a lot of the things that they're drawing attention to have been supported by what I call corporate Democrats for a really long time. And, um, and I call them corporate Democrats because a lot of them take money from corporations and from corporate right. PACs. And in fact, it was well into Obama's second term that he, I think, I could check that, but um, it was definitely after he was elected the first time and I'm pretty sure it was in his second term where he finally agreed that he wasn't going to take money from private prison corporations. Now, it really tells you something about where the Democratic Party has moved to um, and how it has moved away from being the party of, um, of working people to being a party that will take money from, keeping, from companies that keep people in cages for profit, right? And so I think that's at the heart of the conflict and uh, currently for the soul of the Democratic Party. I think that people who take money from, you know, large banks who are not doing anything um, against their charter in, in, in agitating and lobbying and moving for regulations that will deregulate their financial institutions and allow them more freedom to let's just say bet on risky derivatives 
and maybe bet on risky derivatives with hot, with house money. I mean, those banks are acting um, in their own in their own interest and in the interest of their sort of senior uh, leadership, I would say. But if you're if you're a democratically elected representative and your mandate is to represent people and you're taking money from corporations, then I think that you're sort of at odds with what your mandate is and what who your masters are. Um, because we see it over and over and over again that in districts where people are underserved by their representative, generally, um, uh, you know, those districts have been neglected because those um, representatives are busy moving their way up the seniority scale. And they're taking money from, from corporations whose interests are often not really, you know, congruous with the interests of people and democracy. So, you know, a good example of also of that is charter schools. Um, charter schools, I think, have been very detrimental to public education, but they've sold themselves as offering an alternative to a broken system. Yeah. Um, which is, which exactly. is, you know, good mar marketing on their part, but it's not, doesn't actually happen to be true. And in the process, what they've done is um, given a lot of money to, to corporate Democrats who are now in Congress. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of these extraordinarily rich donors are very bipartisan in their, in their donations, and they'll give money to Democrats and Republicans. It doesn't matter to them. They're not ideological about it. They just want someone who will... Um, you know, pass policy and promote policy that will increase their bottom line. Um, health insurance companies are another example. So I think that that, that I think that that's really the split, right? You have um, people who um, were elected before, during, or shortly after Bill Clinton kind of took Democrats on the centrist way. Um, he had something called the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Committee, I think it was, and he his his strategy was to try to triangulate and make Democrats into sort of Republicans light. In other words, very corporate friendly. Yeah. And it set the Democratic Party down this road um, of having to compromise between its donors and its constituents. And I think that it's way past time for that to end. Um, and I think that people are finally becoming outraged. You know, the, the sort of the end result, the logical end result of that system was Citizens United, which we have now and which is sort of a cancer in our society. I think also the um, we're still coming to terms with the uh, the I think the Democrats are still reeling from the fact that uh, even during the Obama years, you still had from uh, 1992 on this sort of Clinton Leviathan hovering above uh, and, and media organizations had reported it's not just like a conspiracy theory. They would rank the Clinton uh, and their their little uh, cabal inside would have Congress people ranked from it was a scale of one to seven in order of loyalty and stuff. And even when Obama was president, everybody knew that uh, Hillary would be the next standard bearer. And I think that, um, you know, we don't think critically of of the legacy of things like NAFTA or the crime bill or. Uh, Wall Street regulatory reform, all of that stuff, which um, I mean, if 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 Bill Clinton ran today, he would be much more at home running as a Republican than as a uh, Democrat in terms of if he was running on his policy platform from the 90s. And we don't really see, um, especially with with the Joe Biden campaign, uh, we're not we're, he's he's trying to um, 
keeps saying, oh, we're going to return to normal and we're going to go back to these uh, Obama policies that uh, I, I think by the end of his tenure uh, had kind of proved in a lot of cases unpopular. And I think when. Right. Yeah. And with with people like Bernie, who uh, he had a bit of a viral moment this week, uh, he was attending some sort of forum that was presented by The Washington Post, but sponsored by Bank of America. And he walks in and he uh, Robert Costa was the moderator. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and it's like Sorry, you're looking at that, and uh, like like also um, the the big newsletter that's kind of taken uh, um, over politics, or not taken over, but become a major force in politics since the Trump uh, election is uh, Axios, and they're funded mm-hmm. by uh, they, they'll put out their newsletter. It's like today is presented by BP, and you're just looking at it, being like, well. Why do you, you know if you're sending out this newsletter? Why do you need all of this funding from uh, an oil company? That that can't be that can't be a, a good idea. Right. Well, that you know that was also Clinton. He deregulated the media, and now we have this tremendous concentration of corporate-owned media. And like every corporation, their motivation is profit, and so they often report on things that were not really designed to. Um, really designed to kind of spread and enhance knowledge of the electorate. They're designed, they're, they're, they're sort of driven to publish things which are sensational or will drive clicks or will attract advertisers. Um, and I remember in the early days of um, the last cycle's presidential campaign, when Trump was getting so much airtime that it was really astonishing. And I'm not really someone who watches television much, um, but pretty much every time there was a TV on, Trump was on and they were giving him all of this, what they called earned media, basically free attention. Um, You know, to the tune, I think the New York Times added it up and it was, I think it was like hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more. And, um, and one of the executives of one of those major news stations says, well, it might be terrible for democracy to be giving Trump all of this coverage, but it's great for our bottom line. Yeah. That was somebody at CBS. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was so sensational. Um, and, and, you know, offensive and, um, you know, made people upset and outraged and, and, and kept drawing audiences. So, um, yeah. And I think that there is this nostalgia for a calmer, gentler, um, more civil is the word that keeps getting thrown around, uh, more civil time in American politics. But I think it was never really civil. I think what happened was that a lot of the disputes were papered over. Um, and glossed over and not covered in the media. And, um, you know, Obama was one of the first people to start digital organizing. But the idea before Obama that you could actually reach voters without going through the mainstream channels was, was unheard of. Um, I think he had a, an email list. He, it was really novel when he started reaching out to people through email and Facebook and those kinds of channels. Um, and, so and and his and his platform was hope and change, right? So I think a lot of people thought, well, they knew, even if they didn't do a lot of political analysis, they knew that many things in their life lives were broken. That it was, um, you know, very hard to take care of elderly family members. That they had returning vets coming home from America's sort of forever wars, and that um, that veterans were, you know, have a much higher proportion of homelessness and were not getting the kind of care that they deserved. And parents were finding that college was unaffordable for their children. 
um, and on and on. And, and, and so hope and change was something that was, um, so refreshing and so, um, mobilizing for a lot of the electorate. And then of course, Obama turned out to be a disappointment. I think he was unlucky, um, in that the housing crisis happened just when he was, um, just when he was elected. And I think also that he was a little naive. I think that his belief in bipartisanship long after was clear to everybody that Republicans were never, ever going to work with him, um, was sort of astonishing to a lot of people watching. And I think finally, he was a corporate Democrat. I mean, I think that he, I think that there are documents that show that he had some discussions with Citibank um, about who would be in his cabinet. Um, he was a corporate establishment Democrat. He was, his policy was not boldly progressive. Um, there was some talk of him, you know, uh, joining unions and people who were striking and saying he would never cross a picket line and do any of that. And that was, you know, during his presidential campaign. And then once he became president, um, we didn't see any policy that was really going to help workers. It became a big fight to even talk about raising minimum wage so that people could afford to live. Uh, so, yeah, so Obama, I think, was a big, big disappointment to many, many progressives, um, not only for his domestic policy, which was very cozy um, with a lot of big institutions, but I think for his failure in leadership. Um, and and I think that's domestic and foreign. You know, Obama, his drone policy, I think, was an absolute disgrace. Yeah, and people exactly. say that there was there was no... Um, scandal during the Obama presidency. And I, my response is always, well, it depends on how you define scandal. Um, I think droning, uh, wedding parties and murdering innocent civilians and talking about them as collateral damage. I personally think that that's scandalous. Um, and if we had, if we had media that was not just driven by, um, corporate profits, I think that those stories would get much better coverage and much more in-depth coverage. And so it's sort of a circular problem. Yeah, I mean, I see, a, I see a lot of the uh, Obama love from uh, a lot of my uh, a lot of my friends in the LGBTQ community will say, "Oh, I miss Obama. At least he got us gay marriage." Like, no, no, he didn't. He had no no role in that. None whatsoever. <laughs> Anthony Kennedy g- gave us uh, gay marriage. A you know a, a a Silicon Valley Republican who was just you know in the twilight of his days finally threw up his arms and said, you know, I, I don't care anymore. That, that got right. us gay marriage. One, one old man. And it wouldn't happen now. Cause you have, uh, you have, uh, Bart Kavanaugh is, uh, the Supreme court, the guy who likes beer uh-huh. and, uh, being, uh, all of- did you call him, did you call him Bart Kavanaugh? Did I yeah, hear you correctly? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that was Bart. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous that it, I, I don't want to, you know, spend too much time on on Kavanaugh, but he's come up a couple times in my other episodes. I I just can't get over how uh, the Democrats put up a seemingly no fight uh, against him. They uh, their their cross examination of him was was a huge waste of time. Spending all the time, oh, why don't you want the FBI investigating? It was too open ended, and um. You know, the I, I've been uh, supporting uh, the Gravel campaign for a little bit, and I uh, I always really look back to what he did with the Pentagon Papers as the reason, uh, you know, why he has so much endearment. We don't have that kind of uh, strive to uh, 
go out and uh, get your hands dirty. They could have they could have held a legislative filibuster on a different thing a week in advance, and if they held the floor, they would just scrub Mitch McConnell's whole senator uh, Senate calendar. Instead, they cut deals to go home early and get some of the people. You know, Schumer's done that a couple times, and I that that kind of um, segues into my next question, which is. Um, you know, House Democrats did this week, they passed the $15 minimum wage. But what's kind of missing from that is any broader. Uh, it, it feels like it feels like it got through, but that a lot of these corporate Democrats don't want it to get through and are trying to be as quiet as possible about it because they know it's going to die in the Senate. But for something as big as that, uh, I, I don't I just. I haven't really seen much attention given to the fact this should be kind of historic legislation that even the people who passed it, even the speaker herself, it, it doesn't seem like she really if if there was a if there was a will to get that through, I'm not really seeing it. Right. Right. Well, I, I do. I do think that that is I do think that that's true. And I think that a lot of people are noticing that lack of fight. Um as you put it, in the Democratic Party leadership. I mean, I, I think talking about a scandal, I think it's also a scandal the way Chuck Schumer has just confirmed um, all these conservative judges that, uh, you know, that Trump has nominated without putting up anything of a fight. And in fact, yeah, when after, after Trump was first elected, you know, he would just vote yay on pretty much everything that came down the pike from Trump until people started showing up outside his house in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, with big signs that say WTF, Chuck, um, I don't know if this is a, I don't know if this is a, like, you know, adult podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's good. We, uh, um, I think with uh, one, one expletive in a single podcast, you're basically required to put, um, for the iTunes, explicit warnings on everything. And they can't just do oh, like, really? yeah, it's not this one episode is explicit. Every podcast now is has it, all of them are, so it's not really a big deal. But yeah, feel free, throw okay. away. All right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that they're engaged in. I think that a lot of the leadership, unfortunately, um, is engaged in something that I think about as as like resistance theater. You know, it's like some kind of um, yeah. some kind of pantomime. They're going through the motions, um, but they're not actually doing anything to resist the Trump agenda. Um, and I think that there are a couple of, I think that there are a couple of issues there. Um, one is I think that leadership is very much disconnected from the day-to-day struggles, um, of many people in America. And, um, and I think that the idea of having a, a livable wage, which, and I don't think $15 an hour is enough necessarily. I think that there are places in the country where, an hour is not enough to afford housing and food and all of the incidentals. There are some parts of the country which are extremely expensive. And there are lots of studies that show that um, the former federal minimum wage, which I think was, you know, $750 or $725, wasn't enough to rent housing anywhere in the nation, um, you know, based on a 40-hour work week. So, so, So these two things move in tandem, right? We have leadership that is disconnected from the needs of their actual constituents, people, um, partly because they're focused on the desires and wants of their corporate constituents. Um, 
you know, and, 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 and pretending to, um, be representatives of the people, but putting on this pantomime of resistance, which doesn't do anything. And I, and I do think that's one of the reasons that people very rationally become disengaged in politics because they, they see politicians hobnobbing with, you know, powerful members of industry and celebrities and, you know, influencers and all this kind of thing. And it doesn't take very much to connect that that person up there is basically enriching themselves and making themselves more powerful and, and not doing anything for the people who elected them. And so it's a very rational thing for people to become disengaged. And I, and I'm not about blaming voters at all. Um, I think that we saw with Bernie Sanders campaign, um, that when people feel like there is somebody who will fight for them and there is somebody who really has their interests at heart, people become re-mobilized and re-energized. Um, and my view is if, you know, if you lose an election, it's your job as the politician and the candidate, um, to get people to vote for you. So I, I don't ever blame, um, voters for not, for not turning out. You can see why they don't, because leadership is just pretty much useless in my opinion. And I think that a lot of the opposition in the establishment Democratic Party is actually not so much to Trump's agenda. I mean, when you look at the history of Democrats who've, you know, engaged in deregulation, have supported anti-union legislation, um, have not moved adequately to protect the environment, who are basically acting like ostriches in the sand, putting their heads in the sand with regarding the, the sort of global and the existential threat of climate change. Um, None of that is contrary to Trump's agenda. What they object to, I think, is that he is so overtly um, offensive and boorish and um, repulsive and racist and xenophobic. And if he were more genteel about it, he, he wouldn't be that far ideologically from Joe Biden, right? I mean, Joe yeah. Biden has voted for war. He has, he was, you know, part of the, um, part of the three strikes out, you're out law, all of those kinds of things. Like he supported mass incarceration. None of these things are so, are so divergent from what the, what a lot of the economic, um, uh, what's the word I want? Priorities of the Republican party. Are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. It's, you know, you imagine uh, people have been asking Joe Biden, no, what are you going to do on a debate stage with uh, Trump? And he's like, oh, I'll just say, you know, oh, come on, Donald. Like he's he wants to talk about Trump's tone, which uh, his tone's horrendous. And his tone this week is uh, especially horrendous. But when it comes to the, the policies. Uh, you know, the health care, like health care, in, in uh, for example, um, I, I don't. There's not a big difference. There's not that much of a difference between um, Biden and Trump in the sense that uh, the Republicans don't, you know, the the repeal and replace thing. I think there's probably the the you know very far right want that want Obamacare gone, but I think the bulk of the Republican Party is probably wishing that the status quo comes because they don't want to. They don't want to if it gets wiped out, they think they'll lose. And Biden doesn't really put forth a um, in, in some ways he differs on Obamacare from uh, Obama himself, who has spoken uh, praise, who's been um, 
praising people who are even talking about Medicare for all. Meanwhile, we have media who over the past couple of weeks have been doing this thing with Bernie where they say, oh, well, what's happened to Bernie? And then they talk about him uh, being boring for saying the same things over and over. But I, I don't see that as boring. And if you look at where the energy in his uh, in, in the grassroots movement from 2016 on, I mean, Bernie's still got a uh, hell of a lot of supporters that he ignited uh, 2016 are, are you know, still as passionate about his uh, ideas as they were before. They think of this, um, they think of him as boring because he doesn't want to chime in on the, the Trump tweet of the day. I, I, I find that kind of criticism against him a little rich when they don't want to, you know, you don't see on a debate stage, uh, cause the sound clips, they're all so short. It's, it's just, you know, blink and you missed it. I would love to see a substantive discussion between Biden and Bernie on whether health care is a human right. Bernie talks about it all the time. The media is essentially like laughing about it because they're smug and all that. Um, this is something that actually uh, voters are, are not, you know, find They don't find that boring. They find it actually very uh, important to talk about. And yet, for whatever reason, we want to just follow Trump down his rabbit holes constantly. It's 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 really there's. You can just find a, a web of uh, contradictions and just uh, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Right. No, I agree. I mean, I think one of the one of the um, things that Bernie's consistency points to, right, is how long America has been grappling with the same problems and they've been growing, um, you know, steadily worse. And so the fact that that Bernie's message is the same and has been completely consistent I think is really redounds to his benefit because he's been fighting on the same issues and he's been fighting for, you know, solidarity and, um, on intersectionality on many issues, um, in a way that a lot of representatives have not been doing. And I wanted to say something about Trump's tone, which is absolutely, I mean, shocking to the conscience and just, and, and just utterly, uh, degrading and awful, I don't think it's just his tone. I think that Trump does a very canny thing, which is that I think um, one of the problems in our politics, one of the things that has been a problem in our politics is that it has been pretty easy to, to sort of divide and conquer, right? So one of the issues that we have um, is that Trump is sort of cleaving off his you know, everyone talks about his white working class base, right? So when he says things that are overtly racist and xenophobic and completely indefensible, he is playing to that portion of his base um, that either avidly supports that or um, is indifferent and doesn't care and therefore still also inherently racist. But what he's doing is he's setting working people against each other because we have the, we have the statistics that show that well over half of American families cannot afford a $400 emergency. They just don't have the cash on hand to cover that, right? And we yeah. have we have the statistics to show that like medical bankruptcies are through the roof. And I think one of the biggest causes of people actually losing their homes is medical debt, right? And so if you had people whose, whose economic interests are actually aligned acting together and in concert and in solidarity, um, that would be a real threat to Trump. 
And I think one of the reasons that we've seen him lashing out at the squad and the way that he has done um, this week is, is that he understands at a very visceral kind of amygdala brain level um, that if people start to band together, um, you know, if different Americans who all represent, you know, regular working people start to band together and advocate for their interests on the environment and on healthcare and on affordable housing and on a livable wage and all these things, that is a real threat to him um, and to his and to his racist nationalist, white nationalist agenda. So, so I don't think it's just tone. I think that he has a political imperative in mind. And I think that that is also an answer to like where, to the fact that progressive policy is winning. Like Bernie's ideas on Medicare for all in the last presidential round, I mean, we're, now people are snickering, but he was laughed at outright. And we were told that yeah. Medicare for all would never, ever happen. Right. Um, and now Obama kind of comes lately to the question and says, oh, well, you know, I support Medicare. For, I support the idea of exploring Medicare for all. I think he couched it in sort of cautious terms. And when I saw that, I sort of threw my hands up. I'm like, it's really too bad. You were never in a position of power to do something about that now, isn't it? Because he actually had um, a slim majority that could have pushed through the public option um, in, in a process called reconciliation. And he didn't do right. it. He, yeah. You know, he caved, he caved to the for-profit health insurance companies. So, uh, so yeah, so um, I'm not sure where we started on this question, but I, I wanted to make a point about Bernie's consistency and the fact that I think that the consistency of Bernie's message is the exact answer to Trump's vicious attacks because Bernie um, has consistently been really good on some things. I think there's, you know, other areas where he has to grow and learn still, but I think in terms of like, working class solidarity um, and advocating people-centered policy uh, as opposed to corporations, I, I think his consistency is a, is a great strength. Um, and from being dismissed as like, I don't know, unicorns and five-minute ads or something, it's now really part of the political conversation, which is progress. I mean, politics is sort of like trench warfare. You know, you move the, you move the line forward um, step by step. Yeah, we don't hear um, they'll say, oh, we can't afford Medicare for all. I mean, how many corporate handouts uh, does it take for for Obamacare to to survive? The amount of just uh, the the intertwining of the um, uh, big pharma who make billions upon billions of dollars. They still just uh, they had the their lobbyists are, are, are having a field day on uh, Capitol Hill getting um these ridiculous subsidies that they then um you know st something like premium uh, uh prescription drugs premiums on prescription drugs uh is something that we i mean we have all of these issues where you get some like mm -hmm. 70 upwards percent of the american people agree and seemingly republicans and democrats are su uh, supposed to be in unison on that that can't go down i don't really see um the same level of, uh, oh, we can't afford that. Why do we spend uh, exorbitant amounts of money, not just not just waging war in the Middle East, but this this defense um, budget is is asinine. And right. to, these are discussions you talk about trench warfare, moving the needle. I mean, that's so true in a lot of um 
a lot of instances, especially uh, like gay marriage 10 years ago, totally up, uh, totally underwater on broader public support. Now we're uh, closing in on like 80 percent, which is great. Right. But um, and that's also just the problem of the Senate where um, you mentioned reconciliation. It should be noted that Obama uh, started with a supermajority, a filibuster proof, uh, and then it yeah. slowly whittled yeah. away. Yeah. Um, and the way the Senate is constructed now, uh, I mean, something needs to change there. If um, I mean, I keep looking at the Senate maps. It looks uh, pretty tough for the Democrats to take. The fact that it's 53 now is uh, it's going to be hard to, to get that uh, to take the gavel away from uh all right, McConnell doesn't have a gavel, um, but uh, taking the Senate would be uh, challenging. And yet, I, I feel like uh, going back to the uh, the trench warfare, um, we can't move the needle on some of this stuff if if people are just unwilling to even uh, talk about the idea that hey, why do we ask why certain things are you know this expensive and. Uh, we just take that, oh, yeah, yeah, $700 billion for the military. Yeah, no problem. Um, taking care of our own people, seemingly that's awful. Uh, I don't really, it, it's it's a total mess. And uh, it's frustrating that they uh, have always, there is this strong desire to write off Bernie. And you see all these uh, articles lately that say, oh, well, Wall Street prefers uh, Elizabeth Warren. And you're looking at that thinking to themselves, I mean, shouldn't that shouldn't that be bigger news that, uh, you know, why can't we have this conversation of ideas ever? I don't know. Right. No, I mean, I, I mean, I think we can. I think just the powers that be um, would prefer that we not. And I and I do think that that's why political leadership is so important. Right. I think that that's why AOC is so important and her victory is so important because she leads with courage. She decides what is the right thing to do. And then she goes out and advocates for it because she expands the notion of what is possible, right? Instead of just looking at the status quo and saying, you know, how do we test this with consultants and see what we can get away with or how we should message this, she decides on what the right thing to do is. And then the messaging follows because she's speaking from a place of moral conviction and courage and leading, and then people will follow, right? So I think that that's one of the things that has been really missing. And again, I think it's because you can't serve two masters. I mean, if you keep passing budgets that just give unrestricted funding to Customs and Border Patrol, or if you're passing massive bloated military budgets, well, you know, does it turn out that you do take money from private prison corporations? Does it turn out that you take money from some of these military industrial complex, you know, uh, manufacturers? Probably probably that's the case. So you're trying to serve two masters. And so, I, and I think that the problem with that, and especially because it is hard to primary people is that a lot of these, a lot of these, um, incumbents haven't been held accountable. Um, so I think that accountability has been a factor and I think that's true, you know, and, and I think also just misinformation. I think that, um, I think that our political discourse has become so much Orwellian, Double speak that it's really very hard for a citizen who is just trying to provide for themselves and their family and be, you know, a productive member of society. It's very hard to parse out who actually did what. Um, because a lot of political communication is designed to, uh, 
obscure what it is that representatives are doing. And I think that's true for Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, I think that's a real problem. Yeah, I've seen that, especially um, with the with the debates coming up and the the, the polling. And I, I've been really frustrated with po- polling since 2016. It was very clear that uh, the Trump polls were wrong. If you just looked at the the swing, the swing states where you had the senators uh, like Florida, you'd say, oh, Trump's down five percent. Marco Rubio is winning his Senate race three. It's like there's not eight percent of these people are not. Uh, uh, gonna vote for Rubio and then Hillary. There's clearly something uh, wrong there, and I think with with a with a field of um, twenty candidates and the the media, the the big issue right now is just the fact that the media has the Trump circus, what's going on in the House, and this massive field. And I've seen a lot of uh, if you're trying to poll a candidate of twenty people. Um, in, in, in an election of July of 2019, a year and a half before, uh, the, uh, final things getting, uh, tallied, if you're going to try and get sort of any accurate number, I feel like there's a lot of people who are just going to, uh, name the person who they heard last. Like we saw this, uh, the post, uh, debate performance, um, for Kamala Harris, she went up like she skyrocketed and i wonder how much of that is because people really like her ideas and there's the whole contradiction over uh her busing policy which is also just kind of a uh weird thing to be talking about in 2019 um it it i i, I guess i'm just frustrated uh, i i don't think that the the uh current state of polling is able to gauge the grassroots energy and beyond that, I don't think they care. I think CNN, CNN's polls in particular, they didn't include a lot of people on the uh, uh, in their polls, and they're hosting a debate. Like, uh, I mean, this is something we've seen. They weren't including a lot of the uh, lower tier candidates because they just didn't want to, and yet they're now hosting a debate. And nobody sees a problem with that. Nobody seems to care. It's very odd. Yeah, well, I think it's odd, and I think sometimes it's just deliberately misleading, right? So what polls don't tell you is what was left out very often. And very often we see polls that are um, designed to get a specific result, right? So if you poll people in, let's say, upstate New York who have landlines um, on what their view is of Amazon coming to Queens, let's just say, for example... Um, you might find that the poll is overwhelmingly in favor of that. But what you left out is all the people who live in Long Island City who would be directly impacted by that kind of thing, who might have a completely opposite view. And in fact, we saw that they had an opposite view because, you know, those were the people who organized to say, wait a second, we're not having a union busting, no tax paying corporation, which is massively profitable taking billions of our taxpayer dollars when we need that money for our own local infrastructure, right? So there's this big disconnect between what pollsters want to show or what they're hoping it's going to show and the, and the data that they sort of selectively um, pick to get the results. So, yeah, I think we should all be very skeptical, skeptical about the polls. I mistrusted the polls just because I was doing door knocking for Bernie and um, and then after Bernie dropped out and Hillary was the nominee, I was doing door knocking for Zephyr Teachout, um, who is a you know wonderful uh, progressive candidate, and she was running um, in a district in upstate New York. 
And people would slam their doors in my face, yelling at me about Hillary Clinton. And I, you know, I wasn't even canvassing for her. It just happened to be that they were both Democrats on the ticket. Um, and so I was very, very worried about those polls. And I don't, and I think it's very hard for pollsters to capture um, momentum or things that are going on sort of on the ground, so to speak. But I also think that they don't try. And one of those reasons is they, they want to drive a certain message. They don't want people to take Bernie, Bernie seriously. Bernie is not the candidate who is going to line their pockets. Bernie's priority is not for ever increasing corporate um, profitability. Bernie's priority is for ordinary people to be able to live a dignified life. And our sort of extreme form of capitalism, where we have so much wealth concentration at the top and becoming more concentrated, and so many Americans who don't have the wherewithal to financially weather an emergency is, um, is, you know, is a huge divide. And the people who are, the people who are governing the news and making it happen are, are disconnected from that reality. And the, the more sensational news there is, the more polls there are that suggest that Bernie isn't, shouldn't be taken seriously, the better it is for their profitability. So yeah, they're, they have a sort of a conflict of interest, which is not disclosed either. No, it's not. Um, do you think that uh, the DNC is treating Bernie uh, fairer this election cycle than 2016, where he was? Um, I mean, if you just look at the debate schedule, 2016, putting debates on Saturdays, Sundays, anybody, anybody trying to argue that the fix wasn't in right from the start. I mean, it's it's the evidence there is uh very apparent, but uh, I was interested in your thoughts on uh, if if some of that's been corrected this year, the cycle. You know, I, I think it's it's just a different race. I mean, I think that they, I think that there was a tremendous backlash, and there were people who admitted, perhaps in an unguarded moment. I think Elizabeth Warren said that she thought that it, the race was sort of fixed against Bernie, and then there was a backlash against her for admitting it. You know, and there were various people who lost their jobs because of the way those debates were structured and that some questions were given to one candidate in advance and not the other. It's a, it's a different situation this time because the field is so big. But, it, it, you know, the, a lot of these televised debates, so much of it is just arbitrary, right? So they had this. So, for example, Bill de Blasio. Is he even in the second round? He has no business oh, yeah. being there. He doesn't have, <laughs> right. He has, he, you know, I think he's polling like just over 1% or some abysmally low number. Yeah. Um, Looper, Michael Bennett, all of those idiots. Yeah. yeah. John Delaney. And, right. I mean, Hickenlooper at least has, you know, his one platform is climate change. Oh, no, and that's Jay, that's Jay Inslee. Oh, that's Jay Inslee. So sorry. Yeah. You're right. Um, sorry, my mistake. <laughs> Because there were so many of them, I get them all. I get all these old, old white men confused. Yeah, um, they're, they're, it's easy. I call them the forgettables. Well, yeah, I actually like that term. I'm going to use it. I mean, yeah, and I think that that I, I think that just even the composition of the debates shows um, how really certain communities and certain backgrounds and ethnicities really need representation in our politics, and and it's just it's not there. Um, so why Bill de Blasio with his dismal polling and not 65,000 donors, um, gets a spot on the debate stage and, you know, Mike Gravel does not is, is sort of arbitrary, but we know that Mike Gravel's message and his policy is not friendly to the shareholders of 
corporations like CNN and, you know, cable news. Generally. Yeah. I read a, um, I read a Politico article uh, about they wanted changes. Uh, they wanted to restructure the, the debates. This person writing it wanted to restructure the debates on like a point system, basically favoring governors and senators. The whole thing was ridiculous, but uh, it was basically to get to get people like um, Marion Williamson off the stage or even actually Mayor Pete, because under that system, uh, a, a mayor would uh, not fit it in. But they referred to the Gravel as uh, his pet issues. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to know that reducing military spending, that's a pet issue. That's no one like I mean, Bernie talks about it, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, there's lots of condescension, right? We see a lot of condescension towards the left. Like we see people say, oh, well, you know, there's the squad, but they're only four. Um, they're only four people and they have no following. And um, it, which is just manifestly untrue. You know, they have tremendous support and tremendous following. But there's this idea that if you're, you know, condescending um, and dismissive, that somehow that that's going to um, sort of... I don't know, shore up your own lousy platform. And I think that we're seeing more and more that if people mobilize and if people organize and if people speak to their neighbors and if people stand together in solidarity, that you can really, you can really move the needle. It is really possible. And I think that for too long, our politics have been um, sort of a system of incumbency, right? So if you're a wealthy lawyer, yeah. And if you're a wealthy lawyer, then you're like, way overrepresented in Congress. And then you of uh, the system is is designed so that you keep getting rewarded for being a wealthy lawyer. And more wealthy lawyers get uh elected and, and have representation in Congress. And so we're leaving out, you know, people of different ethnicities, as I said, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic um circumstances. You're leaving out, you know, a lot of women, a lot of LGBTQ people. It just it, it's just sort of crazy that our that our democracy is so unrepresentative. It's like we pay lip service to this idea of diversity. Um, but incumbents find the idea of diversity very threatening. And so they respond with this kind of condescension, I think. But I, I think one of the good things is that um, a lot of people who are involved in the political moment right now are young people. And um, one of the great things about young people is that they've never really necessarily been known for their deference. Right. And, no. <laughs> um, right. And so that demographic is facing all of these tremendous obstacles to, you know, in terms of their student debt and, uh, you know, not having healthcare. And one of the amazing things that AOC does is that she gives voice to those things by talking about how she didn't have, um, health insurance until she became elected to Congress. And I think that that, um, she is normalizing that experience, which is a huge part of the American experience, but people feel ashamed to talk about it because there is um, this idea that if you are wealthy, you're somehow better, you're somehow more deserving, right? And um, the system in which a lot of these people became wealthy doesn't exist for young people anymore. It used to be that if you went to a state school, you could graduate with no or very little debt and you, you know, housing was relatively affordable. You could put down a payment on a house and, and you could have a secure and dignified life, but that's not the world that young people are facing any longer. And so I think there's also this big generational divide and I'm very, 
um, excited and heartened by the fact that young people, you know, we see it with Sunrise Movement, for example, um, those, those, those young organizers are just amazing um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of their ability to mobilize people and also their just refusal to take no for an answer because they understand the stakes and they understand that the system, the way it's designed has not been working for anyone except the people at the very top. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about their ability to bring change um, in the struggle, struggle for dignity. Yeah, that was one of the biggest, um, sort of the greatest thing about the AOC campaign was um, for all the people that you described earlier who, you know, would, would uh, say, you know, good luck with this, you know, Joe Crowley, as powerful as he was, um, once, and we see this in the 2020 Field, many of whom are uh, running on ideas that Bernie uh, in 2016 were just laughed at over. And now a lot of Bernie's ideas are mainstream. But likewise, with uh, AOC proved, you know, you can uh, you can go for the top and make it. And w one thing I also just agreed, um, since you brought up uh, young people, um, when it comes to like uh, the way that Joe Biden described uh the way that he would work with uh, the the uh, the segregationists, I think that kind of encapsulated uh, the media didn't really talk about uh, this kind of angle, but just the fact that that demonstrates just how fundamentally wrong um, Congress or, or just D.C. is where um it's not talking about, oh, I didn't get along with that person on any uh, ideological things. It's, oh, that person was uh, was nice to me, so I liked them, and therefore, you know, they're okay, even though their policies are uh, abhorrent and horrendous. And, you know, the, the, it's, it's because you've got this class of people who are caring more about uh, having a good time uh, chumming it up at the cocktail hour afterward than uh you know going to the mat for the ideas that they're that right. they were elected to to right. you know go there and advocate for and we don't see right. that and right. you know young people are on the outside looking in being like yeah you want to talk about uh how much people love private health care try being in your 20s finding a job where they haven't structured it so you're some kind of independent contractor uh mm -hmm. designed perfectly around the idea of making sure you don't have that health care you know, right. it, it, the system right. is not working for young people and we don't want to take it. Right. Right. Not working for well, a lot of people. Exactly right. It's not working for a lot of people. And I, and I think that it's a lot of that is because a lot of corporations, most corporations, most businesses are not designed to work for the workers. Um, um, you know, at any level, it's really the workers, they provide the labor and that's what drives the profits. And then you have employers who are in a position to chisel them and they do um, and try to cut benefits and try to, you know, I think Walmart is most infamously um, famous for this, you know, sort of messing with the, with the check talk-in cards um, to, and rounding down people's hours so that people don't get paid for like portions of hours, um, which is, which is just shocking. Um, it's just shocking. And I, I think we haven't had a conversation about the lack of morality of that system, 
um, for a really long time because there's there's lots in in the sort of canon of public speak of oh capitalism is good capitalism raises all boats um, well not if you not if it's completely unfettered um, as it has been for so long and that's why we I think see the rise of an alternative especially among young people who say well we're organized society and so really we should have something that is based on a socialist idea which is that we all live in a society together and everybody should benefit um, from the wealth that, that young people and workers are generating um, and not just the people who own the business. So, um, and, and that is a very, again, a very threatening idea. I mean, a, a lot of the backlash that we see is that these ideas are really threatening to people who, who have power and who have a lot of money and control a lot of means um, because they don't want to share their wealth. And I, and I don't think they have a conception of um, a sort of a larger republic where our obligation is to each other as human beings and citizens and that each person deserves to live a dignified life and that no matter what work you do, um, that work has dignity and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be shamed and chiseled for it um, or set against your coworkers. You know, we see that a lot with, in terms of businesses that are very anti-union. The idea of, of workers organizing is very, very threatening, which is why Amazon doesn't allow it. Um, and so it's not an accident, is my point. Yeah, uh, the a, whole... Yeah, you mentioned it earlier, the... You know, they're, they're so keen to pit workers against each other, but, I mean, the person... the it's 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 something that if you just kind of took a step back and say to yourself, okay... The threat is not, you know, this worker coming to take my job, but the fact that I'm doing my job and it's not not paying enough. The the they the people at the top have gotten people so sort of conditioned and used to the idea that, well, if you don't like it, we'll you know we'll get some immigrants in here and they'll do it for the exact wage that you're complaining about. And lost in that broader uh, question is the idea of you know why does a CEO make uh, a thousand times more than a person does that make any any sense of uh that make any sense no um the whole crony capitalism it's just uh ridiculous but um i had uh, i had one sort of uh final broader probably kind of uh the sort of question that's uh difficult to to answer but um looking looking forward in the uh 2020 uh race um just kind of based on what we've learned in 2016 maybe serving as a guide or the the way that the the grassroots energy played out in 2018 wanted to kind of get your broad thoughts on uh where you see uh where you see this 2020 primary race going well i i mean i'm all in for bernie so i'm i'm hoping that bernie runs away with it i don't think that we can i don't think we can predict um, at this point. And as you mentioned earlier, I think the polls are useless. And I also think that these debates are, are kind of useless. Like I don't yeah. you know, Marco, uh, Rubio, um, not Rubio, um, Castro, sorry. Um, Julian, yes. Julian Castro. Um, as I was talking to you, this news story with Rubio popped up on my screen. And so, <laughs> um, he, he, you know, he really um, had to sort of fight to get some airtime and sort of a standout moment in, in that debate. Um, and it was on immigration. And he, 
Um, and, and he did really well. He didn't get any, um, any tough questions about his tenure, you know, at housing and urban development. And I think that there are a lot of tough questions that can be asked of him, but for, you know, at the end of that, if you watch the sort of commentary, everyone was like, Oh, you know, he, he, he wanted, he ran away with it. He scored all these great blows and he made all these great points. And then if you looked at his polling, it went up by like a blip, you know? Yeah. So these, these debates are like, you know, this, everybody's sort of vying for this standout moment. Um, and I think Bernie generally underperforms in these debates because he, because he has been consistent. And I think he underperformed in the debates in the last cycle too. But I think his message is still reaching, is still reaching, you know, the base. And um, the most important thing, I think, is organizing. I think that, um, I think the polls are less important. I think that the, I think the debates are less important. I think the thing that will win it is the person who has the best organization on the ground to motivate and turn out voters. So what I'm looking at is what is going on in, you know, the early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. I think Bernie has a heavier lift in South Carolina, but I believe his yeah. campaign is working on it. Um, so I'm looking at that. And then I'm also looking at what is going on in terms of organizing in the swing states that Hillary lost. Um, because I think um, that's the way to win. You know, that's the way to win in the general is those swing states. And I think that a lot of the progressive um, issues that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, to some extent, um, are talking about resonate with regular bread and butter kitchen table issue voters in those in those swing states, because we see a lot of economic pain there and a lot of people who've been left behind by the American dream. And unfortunately, Trump's racism and demagoguery was able to um, motivate people who don't ordinarily turn out to vote. Um, but they thought, oh, this guy is speaking my language. And um, so we need to get people who are um, concerned about their fellow human beings and concerned about their fellow citizens and who believe that we can actually lead in this direction. We've shown that we, we're making progress and who want to support a platform of Medicare for all and, you know, a living wage and um, publicly funded education and a foreign policy that is a policy of peace. Um, you know, with this war economy that we live in is detrimental to everybody. Um, and, and that has to end. And I think that a lot of communities are, are tired of it. So, so I, I think it's really too early to say. I do think that someone like Biden, I don't, I don't really know what he's still doing in the race. Um, <laughs> I, and I, I don't, and I don't think that, you know, I don't think he can win against Trump. I mean, I think if Biden is no, not, I, yeah. I think Trump is going to win again. We'll get another four years of this nightmare. Um, yeah. I mean, the way that I've looked at the, it, it, you mentioned, I mean, organization, especially with those caucus states like Iowa and Nevada. And, uh, those are, those are difficult. You need the, in, in, uh, institutional support. You need to have people on the ground, but, um, this, this general election, um, if you flip, if Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and then, I mean, I look at, I look at the way Florida turned out in 2018 and I'm worried. I think, I think that's redder than anybody wants to give it credit for. But, um, if you take like a tariff stricken Iowa or, uh, North Carolina, or, um, you pick off one of those or, 
I mean, Arizona, they're running that moron uh, McSally who lost the race in uh, 2018 is running again against uh, the astronaut Mark Kelly. They can pick off yeah. Arizona and just retake the ones that Hillary uh, took a nap during in 2016. Uh, and that's where that's where a guy like Bernie can. I think he can go and take Michigan. I think he can go Pennsylvania. We're not talking big, big vote totals. Um you know, this is only a handful of states. These national polls are totally worthless. I don't want to see, oh, Biden right. leading Trump by nine points. That's not true. We saw yeah. those same same nonsense with Hillary. And a national poll doesn't matter. Right. No, I agree. I agree. I don't think there's any way to tell. I mean, I think we'll know much better what is who the Democratic nominee will be after the early primary states. And I think we'll know much better once we see what the organizing is in those swing states. Um and I am really hoping and working, um, you know, and volunteering for it to be Bernie because I don't see anybody else who can drive the kind of um, kind of rallies, the kind of turnout, the enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't see anybody other than Bernie who can do that to counter Trump. Um, and he has been doing it for a long time. It's just that they show the Trump rallies on TV and not the Bernie rallies. You know, he has standing room only, line out the door, overflow crowd as big as the indoor crowd. That's still going on for Bernie. You just don't see it reported very much. Yeah, that's, uh, I could go on and on about uh, how the media needs to, every hour, repeat the same exact A block for the first 15 minutes and all of that. But uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a transgender it's person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's just to see to see real issues just bump to the end, it's just absurd. But um, yeah, I don't want to. Uh, I didn't want to take up uh, any more of your time. But uh, if there's any, anything else you wanted to talk about in the closing, uh, I mean, feel free. But I, I didn't want to uh, just. I could go on and on about politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Um, Natalie, do you want to, um, I'll link to your Twitter. I know, uh, Charlie Kirk is a big fan of your Twitter. Um, <laughs> Oh, that culminantly slander libel. How could you? Um, yeah, yeah. that, uh, Absolutely. Natalie, Natalie had a, uh, very viral, uh, very simplistic, um, you know, the Republican party likes to run on like buzzwords, like, like socialism and all of that, that, um, don't really adequately uh, explain the very realistic, humane, decent policies that uh, people like Bernie have advocated for for decades. And they like to, you know, a little uh, little snot-nosed, uh, whiny Charlie Kirk with his... Uh, he thinks he's very clever, but... Um, yeah, well, I, I, you know, know, dunking on Charlie Kirk is not a, it's not a huge lift, but... Um, <laughs> But that was a that was a sort of a fun moment. So, uh, so thank you again, and uh, thank it's you. been really fun talking to you. Yeah, and to uh, everybody listening, uh, we really like doing these uh, politics episodes. It's always fun to uh, talk with people who have uh, literally walked the rock and uh, knocked on the doors, and um, it's just been uh, it's been great. And to everybody listening, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.